exciting new beginnings. What a privilege to be here. I feel like really all I need to do is close in prayer. We have done what we came here to do, haven't we? Haven't we worshiped wonderfully? This is the third time I've been able to worship uh, this morning with this worship team that you have. You know how blessed you are to have these dedicated people? Let's give them to God. And I've, I've looked forward to this. Todd and, I've been, not Todd and I have been good friends for a while. And um, uh, New Beginnings, the name of your church. I mean, that should be the name of every church, don't you think? I mean, a relationship with Christ is a new beginning and the rising of the sun is a new beginning and an answer to prayer is a new beginning and a new friendship, a new beginning. And you have chosen a, a very good name and I think all churches should be named that. So I'm glad though to actually get to see you face to face. I mean, I was in the fishing boat with your pastor. Uh, one of the delightful days of uh, talking and fellowshipping, I fell in love with that guy. Uh, I love his vision, I love his passion, I love his love for you as a church. We were just interrupted by silly fish that had to get caught. Otherwise it would have been just a really nice just chat. But you should hear him when, he's not here right now, you should hear him when he talks about you. Uh, he loves you, he believes in you. I had the impression that when I got here, you were all going to be like 10 feet tall, able to leap buildings in a single bound. And uh, I'm so relieved to get here and, I, and you are Texan, so you are big, okay, I'll give you that. But uh, you're not as intimidating as I thought you might be. <laughs> what I did learn is uh, your love for children. You guys are living out your faith wonderfully. You know, Jesus said, make disciples, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'm here to talk with you this morning about opportunities in the uttermost parts of the earth. But what I see going on right here is, uh, is amazing. Uh, to me, uh, the hundreds of children that you are sponsoring way out there where compassion works, but here, the remarkable work that you're doing with foster care and with uh, adoption is really living out your faith right here in your home place. And I, I love what I'm seeing with that. I love the, I, I walked in the west entrance here and I saw the children's area and I see all of the volunteers and the effort and the staff that are working there. One of the things that moved me deeply is to know that your pastor's wife, uh, Adrian, you know where she is today? She's pouring her heart out into the preschoolers over there, the next generation of this church. And so when I, when I come in here and see you and listen to you worship, I'm like, I've come home. This, uh, this feels so easy, I'm right at home with you. But you have to understand is normally when, uh, when I am out speaking, it's often at conferences uh, and, and places like that. And my audience is often uh, mission executives and um, theologians. And uh, I can tell by their body language, the minute they understand we're gonna be talking about children, they got their hands like this, they're like, Really, we're talking about children? What don't I know about children? 
So for them, I have to come up with all kinds of statistics and all kinds of strategy and all kinds of scriptural support for it. Uh, it sucks the life out of me because I'm like, it's really about what's going on in your heart. But coming here today, I don't know, this, I'm far from home, but this feels like vacation to me because I know your heart already and I don't need to convince you of the importance of ministry to children. So instead, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in what I see you doing and what I know you're doing around the world. And I want to arm you for the battle. Maybe a few new thoughts when you're dealing with other people who don't quite get what you get and that children are right at the very center of the kingdom of God. If I had uh, written up a title for this talk, it would have been something like, the least of these matter most. The least of these matter most. The church has behaved for the last 2,000 years with its budget, with its priorities, with its strategies, as if Jesus, that great master teacher in Matthew 25, inadvertently skipped a word when he said, whatever you have done for one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. We behave as if what he meant to say apparently is whatever you've done for one of the least important of these. But that isn't what he said. He did understand the least of these to be the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. He surely meant, sure enough, the youngest and the smartest, or the smallest and the, the weakest among us. He surely meant the least able to speak for themselves, to protect themselves, to care for themselves the least able to thank you and reward you and honor you. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40, mysteriously and wonderful, wonderfully, that was me when you did that. You didn't know it, but it was me. So teacher, that little guy that has been driving you nuts in the classroom that you have been lovingly, patiently bringing along, someday your Lord will say, mm -hmm, that was me. I felt your love as you did that. Officer, that little girl that you protected, that was Jesus there. Those tears that you brushed, he'll say, from that little cheek, I felt that those were my tears. I felt that much-needed hug that you gave. That child that you sponsored all the way across the world, that was me. When you provided a well for that child so they could have safe, clean water, I tasted that cup of cold water. That Matthew 25 verse 40 verse about the coming judgment of the sheep and the goats, if you remember that one, that is going to happen. It's right around the corner. It is one trumpet blast from now when the veil is pulled apart and we all understand and we see the kingdom for what it really, really is. And in that day, there's going to be a lot of surprises. It's going to be surprising. Those that we thought were, um, were important are not going to be all that important. And those that we overlooked are going to be at the center of the kingdom. What we thought was important, we're going to discover, really wasn't all that important. And what we didn't think important was because we will now understand this upside down kingdom of our Lord that we belong to, a kingdom where the first or last and the last are first. The weak are strong. The strong are, in fact, weak. Um, and ultimately, the little are, in fact, big. 
And we will understand that. And all of those who really poured themselves into children's ministry will ultimately realize they were at the very center of the heart of the kingdom of God. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, let's see if we're all on the same page, first of all. A little test, if you will, from Dr. Stafford. You don't get to be a PhD without making a few classrooms squirm, you know. So before we uh, get into the topic of children, I wanna see maybe it is that we're all on the same page. And if so, well, then we can just go get coffee. But if you're not, then we do have to go through with this. So here's the story. You don't need a pencil or a, a piece of paper, just your imagination. Picture this happening. This is the story of D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, founder of Moody Bible Institute, one of the schools I graduated from. Back in the 1800s, this happened. So D.L. Moody was climbing into bed one night after an evangelistic service when Emma, his wife, uh, apparently didn't go that night. She rolled over sleepily as he climbed in and said, well, Dwight, how did it go tonight? And he said, well, pretty good. Two and a half converts. Emma thought for a second. She says, that's a cute way to put it. How old was the child? And D.L. Moody said, no, 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 no. It was two children and one adult. The children have their whole lives in front of them. It's the adult who's half gone. I heard a little bit of, uh, you pictured two grown-ups and a child now, didn't you? So did I. I had worked at Compassion for 10 years when I heard that story, and I pictured two grown-ups and a child. I don't anymore. It's why I wrote Too Small to Ignore and why I wrote uh, Just a Minute and what I ultimately do want to share with you. Moody led a million people to Christ during his lifetime. Over half of them were children. And on his deathbed, D.L. Moody said, if I had my life to live over again, I would dedicate it entirely in ministry to children. In the 1800s, D.L. Moody was way out of step with the theologians and the mission executives of his day. But I'm here to tell you, after 45 years of speaking on behalf of children, I realize that he still would be out of step with the priorities and the strategies of the church and mission efforts in our world today. But he understood the harvest, and that's why he felt so strongly about that. In my book, Too Small to Ignore, I mentioned that I think that ministry to children is the great omission of the great commission. And where did I get that feeling? Uh, I remember when I first became Compassion's president, there was an evangelism conference held in Colorado Springs uh, where I live, and they invited in evangelists from all across the world. We gathered for three days and uh, to share with one another best practices and how we might reach this world uh, for Christ. Uh, I remember they gave everybody 15 minutes to speak. Uh, they had a guy in the front with a little bell that when the 15 minute came, he rang the bell and that meant, I don't care if you're Billy Graham, get off the stage. We don't have time for stories and jokes. Uh, we just want facts and figures. We're serious about bringing this world to Christ. So I was serious too. And I arrived as a brand new president of Compassion with my notepad and my pen, ready to take copious notes. 
What, uh, what, what, what about children and, and what about Compassion's ministry to children? How do we fit in this great big picture? So I sat there ready to write and the first one spoke and the bell rang and they left and I realized I hadn't written anything down. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm gonna have to pay a little closer attention. Apparently I missed something there. So I was getting ready to the next one. Went 15 minutes, again the bell rang and uh, I still hadn't written anything down. And I started getting a little worried. We weren't talking about children here. So I did what I was, I was ready to do, what I used to do as a little boy uh, in church. When things were a little slow, my mom would slip the bulletin over to me and with a pencil I would go and I would fill in all of the zeros and all of the O's in the bulletin, passing time. Anybody do that? Yeah. I, w I was about to do that when I thought, I'm a grown up now, I can't be filling in O's in the bulletin. So I thought, why don't I just keep track? If they're not gonna do a whole lot of talking, let me just keep track of how often they say child or children. So I started my little sad tally in the corner of my paper. And um, I sat there for two and a half days and I heard the word child or children only 12 times in two and a half days. Never strategically, just always in passing. Like I remember one guy said, every man, woman, and child. Just kind of threw them into the lump. And I was like, okay, he said children, I gotta mark that. A woman got up and said, we gotta get the women of the world to start praying for the world and not just for their children. And I'm like, that's getting a little further away still. But he said children, so I had to mark it down. Never were children mentioned in a strategic or a focused way. They were talking about people groups, uh, different nationalities, different ethnicities, those with various kinds of challenges as a way to target it. And so I listened to the talk about people groups and I, I realized after two and a half days, I could lead a one-armed Muslim woman cab driver in Islamabad to Christ, but I didn't learn anything about leading a child to Christ. And I looked ahead in the program and I saw that there was a session called Other Comments at the very end of the conference. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna bide my time. But boy, when we get to that, if we haven't started talking about children, I'm gonna stand up and we're gonna wake this place up a little bit. So I waited and uh, even with a bell ringing, the conference got further and further behind until uh, they finally had to cancel that final session. I'm like, oh, that was my chance to awaken these people to kids. But here's what I wanted to do and what I did with the rest of my life. I wanted to say, people, I agree with you about reaching this world for Christ, but I want you to close your eyes for a second and I want you to picture the sea of humanity that we're trying to reach for Christ that we've been talking about for two and a half days. Now, if in your mental image, every other person isn't a child, you don't even know what the harvest looks like. Our world is now half children. And not only are they half of the world, but they are at the time, the most strategic time to lead someone to Christ. Missiologists tell us that 85% of us who give our lives to Christ do it between the ages of four and 14 while we're children. Line up 10 Christians, ask them, when did you make that decision? Typically, eight of them will say, when I was between the ages of four and 14. So let's do a little research here this morning. 
How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, that, that was me. I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was between four and 14 years of age. Raise your hand really high. Look around you. It's at least 60% in this place. Here's what's truly sad. With that being the case, you'd think there would be a great effort to bring children to Christ and disciple them, but it is a rare mission organization that spends more than 10% of its budget and effort on reaching children. And it's a rare church that spends more than 15%. New Beginnings is a very unusual church. This is why my heart is so, so full to be with you. But it's rare for a church to care like that. And I don't know about you, but I don't think we're gonna bring in this harvest uh, without a change. So I went from that conference thinking, okay, so how did we get so far removed from the heart of God? And I thought, well, is it because there's too few of them? And I thought, no, no, that's not the case. They're half the world. I thought, could it be that they're unimportant or they're only half as important because they're only half our size? And I have a very short wife who can make a real case why size has nothing to do with how important you are and what your thoughts are. So I have long since learned that lesson. Um, I wondered if maybe we're unfamiliar with their plight. More of us need to get PhDs in this field in order to understand it. But as I look at you, I realize, no, I don't think that's the case. Almost everyone that I see in this sanctuary is an expert in child development. Let me just do another little piece of research. How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I was a child? Ah, yeah, 100% participation. Everybody that I've ever met either is a child, like this little guy here, like this little couple over here, or was a child. We don't need to know anything more. You spent 18 years doing nothing but being a child. I wondered, is God maybe a little too silent? He should have made it more clear their place in his kingdom. But then you read, let the children come unto me, train up a child in the way he should go. Don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. The scriptures are abundantly clear that they are right at the very core of the kingdom. And our responsibility is great. I thought, well, maybe uh, God doesn't know how to use children in all of this. And then I went back through the scripture and if you read my book, the whole eighth chapter is nothing but children across the scripture that I was able to ferret out. And I discovered that almost any time a child is mentioned in scripture, God is up to something pretty important, something that he probably can't entrust to a child or, or, or to, to, to a grown-up. He's like, this is really big, so I need someone really small. Like to kill the giant Goliath who for 40 days had ridiculed the most powerful army uh, in the world at the time. Because what wasn't needed was military might. What was needed was faith. And a little boy who said, you know what? I just got a piece of string here, uh, but I, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Eli, the high priest, was so far removed from God that God could no longer speak to him. And he chose a little boy, Samuel, to go in and talk to Eli. And he didn't give him an easy message. This is how much God respects children. He didn't give him a message to say, Eli, would you and your sons please be good? Would you listen for God to speak to you? He basically gave him their pink slips and said, you're all fired. Because what was needed was a pure, clear channel that even a wayward priest could understand. At age 12, Jesus taught 
in the temple. I believe the feeding of the 5,000, one of the most precious sermon uh, miracles in all of the New Testament, was done for one little boy whose name we don't even know. And I believe that 5,000 people got fed because one little boy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what if I gave you everything I have? All five loaves and two fishes. Would that be enough? I don't know about us grown-ups. We'd have said, excuse me, but I'm the only Eagle Scout, apparently, that thought to bring lunch. So you can have some of it. You can have two loaves and one fish. That's grown-up thinking. The little one said, take it all, Lord. I would love to have been there that night when he got home from all of this and his mom said, well, how did you like your lunch today? She said, you're not gonna believe what happened to my lunch. She's like, would you stop exaggerating? I've told you that a million times. <laughs> I believe that uh, God still uses children. I've watched it in my 45 years with compassion. I could talk to you about the whole rest of the day, God using children today. The, promise with, the prom- problem with us grownups is we think too much or we know too much, or I think the real problem is we think we know too much and God can't use us the way he should. I wondered then finally, is it just that we don't love him? And after 45 years of working in many, many cultures, I have yet to find a culture that doesn't love its children. In fact, poverty stricken cultures often have a proverb that children are a poor man's riches. So I thought beyond that, I thought, well, maybe they're forgotten, maybe they're left behind because they're easy to leave behind, they're easy to ignore. I mean, think about it, they are basically powerless in our world, they lack financial resources, they have no voice, they have no political understanding to uh, move laws in their favor. They are, uh, as we all know, completely unorganized. I mean, just look at the rooms, okay? They are completely unorganized. Um, Every segment of society has learned how to lobby, how to march, how to protest, except children. I have never seen a children's protest anywhere in the world, and I've been watching for them. But the truth is, if they could protest, if they could speak for themselves, they would have something to say about society because they suffer the most when anything goes wrong in society, it's as if all of the ills of society spiral downward and land on the head of our weakest, littlest citizens. They pay the greatest price for famines, for natural disaster, for disease, for our sins of commission. Those are doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. Do you know that more children have been killed in the last 10 years wars than soldiers? Prostitution at its sickest is child prostitution. Same thing with uh, pornography. Do you realize that there are 27 million slaves in the world today? That's more than there were at the time of Wilberforce when slavery was abolished. And it's an uglier slave than it even was back then. It used to be the value of a slave was determined by how big and strong is he? How much can he lift? How much can he pick? How uh, How much can he chop? Today, those 27 million are mostly children and young ladies in the sex trafficking industry. The question isn't how big and strong are they, the question is how weak and vulnerable are they and what can you get away with them? And I can tell you that hell does not burn hot enough for evil at that level. But it's also true of our sins of omission, not doing the things that we know we should do. 
unhappy homes that go on for year after year, missed opportunities to hug our children, to encourage our children, to pray with our children. When things go wrong in the home, children inevitably blame themselves. And I think the worst sin of omission that there is is to know that this is going on and be doing nothing about it. Edmund Burke said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And Albert Einstein said it differently. He said, the world's a dangerous place to live, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who don't do anything about it. So why are they the least of these? Why are they forgotten in all of this? I've come to this conclusion after 45 years. Although governments and missions and often churches ignore them, the two greatest forces in all of the universe do not ignore them. The hordes of hell and the hosts of heaven fight over each and every little child. Satan determined to destroy them, and we know that all of heaven stands and rejoices when one little one walks into the kingdom. So Satan knows the heart of God. He witnessed creation, and he saw what God loves most is mankind. So if I want to break God's heart, I should attack mankind. And the next question was, when's the best time? And he must have said, the sooner the better. And so he attacks in the womb. He attacks early, early childhood when the cement of our souls is still pliable. And he watches for each opportunity. On the other hand, the creator of our universe knows the name of every child, how many hairs are on their heads, the pattern of their fingerprints like no other child, knit their DNA in their mama's womb, knows the talents and the potential that he wants for them. And so Satan attacks the womb. The womb has become one of the most dangerous places on earth to be a child. Satan will also use poverty to separate us from God, but he also uses comfort and convenience to separate us from God. I am back and forth all these years between the, the developing world and my home country here in the United States. And over there, I am called on to comfort the afflicted. Then I come over here, and I'm called on to afflict the comforted. And to do that with the same love is a really tricky thing. We sing the same hymns. We pray to the same God. The worst thing about poverty is not food, it's not water, it's not hygiene, it's not housing. The worst thing about poverty is uh, a message that those things bring into a child's heart that says, give up. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to change anything. Don't even hope. Give up. I've learned after all this time that if you can take a picture of it, it's not poverty. It's a symptom of poverty. And it's good to relieve uh, suffering from those symptoms. But unless you address the issue in the heart of a person, uh, you'll do good, but you'll never do kingdom good. And so um, the most loving thing that can be done for a child is to be bringing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why Compassion does what it does in, uh, in its ministry, working through the church with Christian sponsors who are reaching out and touching these little ones with that profound message. So I'm a champion for children, as you can imagine. I've never met a champion for children that doesn't have a pretty powerful reason for, um, for being in the fight. 
and, and I'm no exception. Proverbs 31.8 probably tells my story best. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. So my battle for children began a long, long time ago when I was being knit, I think, in my mama's womb. I'm pretty sure the angels gathered around and were advising uh, God on uh, you know, what characteristics to put in this guy. Uh, but then when I was born, they took one look and said, well, you know, he is cute, uh, but he's not a rocket scientist. We're gonna have to make it real clear what he's to do with his life. So I got born into the family of Ken and Marge Stafford. Ken and Marge Stafford were from Denver, Colorado. Uh, they were uh, childhood sweethearts, went to Judson Memorial Baptist Church. They listened to a lot of missionary speakers and they used to nudge each other in the back row. I see you in the back row. Used to nudge each other in the back row and say, please Lord, don't call us to be missionaries. And if you do, please, not Africa. So I was born to Ken and Marge Stafford, missionaries to Africa. I was raised on the Sahara Desert in Ivory Coast, West Africa, one of the hottest, dustiest environments you would ever find. I was a typical missionary kid, ran around barefoot. I spoke four languages every day, but none of them very well. I was skinny as a rail. I was sickly, I nearly died. Uh, of malaria six times and other reasons to die. Our nearest hospital was 100 miles away in a two-rut road across the savannah. The closest I ever came to dying, army ants. I was nearly killed by army ants who swarmed over and poisoned me. Uh, the whole village gathered around our little house to pray for the little white guy. If you don't have a cause in life and you need a cause, if you don't have one, you can join me in this one. Step on every ant that you see. <laughs> it, will, it will take me a lifetime to get even with those rascals. They nearly, they nearly took my life. My sister and I were the only white children for 100 miles. The nearest ones were at the hospital, a day's drive away. A typical day was 120 degrees. Like I told you, it was remote. We had no electricity, if you can imagine, in 120 degree weather. Therefore, no radio, no television, no refrigerator even. My mom, a city girl from Denver, out there on the desert, I can remember so clearly, she would stand at the kitchen sink with a Tupperware bowl and she would be washing dishes, looking out across the Sahara Desert, shimmering with heat. She'd blow her hair up out of her face, sweat dripping off her nose, and she would say, I don't have much in the way of luxuries way out here in the middle of nowhere but I have one luxury, I have running water. Wes, take the bucket, run out to the well and give me some water. So I, was, I was back and forth, I, I was the running water in our house. My father was a linguist, he put the Senefu language into writing, translated, translated much of the uh, New Testament. At age seven, I was teaching Africans how to read their own language. I have been there when people first heard the word Jesus, and I have watched the expression on their face. If you'd have asked me as a little boy, who are you? I'd have said, I'm a missionary. They had a saying in our village, it takes the whole village to raise a child. This was not a plaque on the wall, this was how we lived. Every child belonged to every grown-up. And even though I was the wrong color, I got in on that deal. And they loved on me and my sister, 
They taught me what they taught their kids. I learned how to hunt, I learned how to fish, I learned how to work in the fields. By the time I was 15 and came to America, I was a fully trained peasant farmer. Could have raised a family out there on that sand uh, as, a, as a little tiny guy. They, uh, they, they were there when I fell down, they comforted me. Uh, I, I never fell down without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears, sending me on my way. I didn't get away with a lot of little crimes because I had hundreds of African people who thought I was their boy, their child. And uh, they wanted me to grow up to be the best person I could be. And I remember one time the uh, village chief, as we were gathered around a campfire in the evening, uh, was saying, you know, I noticed that the goats are kind of skinny this year. And it's not because we're in a drought this time. It's because the little boys are chasing them all around the village. And in the swirling red dust, I don't know who all the culprits are, but I know the little white boy right there. He's one of them. <laughs> From that point on, I prayed every night, please, Lord. And I know you can do this. You brought down the walls of Jericho. You parted the Red Sea. When I wake up in the morning, let my skin be black like all of my friends. And that would be the first thing I would check every morning. I'd throw my sheet off. Still white. But maybe tomorrow. I'll hope for tomorrow. They taught me my values, everything I needed to know to lead Compassion's worldwide ministry. I learned from the poor in that little village. They taught me about love. And they taught me about joy. Joy is not dictated by circumstances, by the way. It's a decision, a very courageous decision that you make on how you're gonna live. Same thing with hope. Time is to be your servant, not your master. We went by uh, just the movement of the sun. The meeting began here, supposed to end here, but meh, if good stuff is going on, it could go down over here. I got a clock counting down right here, so I'm very aware that I'm not in my village. Uh, I, we, we learned to be grateful. Learn that if God made you strong, it's not for you, it's for the weak. We learned to be generous. The worst thing you could be in my village was selfish. The cruelest thing you could have done to me would have been to give me two pieces of candy, because I would have said, well, one for me probably, but surely not both. Now what am I gonna do? One piece of candy and all these friends. I don't look down to the poor. I look upward to the poor, and I have guided Compassion's worldwide staff to realize you've got to earn the right to even be around them. And when you do, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and they should be used in about that proportion. But we were poor, and poverty was a cruel, horrible thing. Uh, we needed rain uh, to fall at the right time. Uh, I remember one year, right at harvest, a plague of locusts, grasshoppers like out of Egypt, came off the Sahara Desert. We thought it was rain when we saw the dark clouds. Turns out it was gra grasshoppers. They were on the ground for about two hours in our village, ate everything green, all of our crop, all of the leaves off the trees. The swamps dried up, the animals migrated away, and for a year we nearly died. All we ate was uh, termites. That same year, all of us as skinny as can be for having nothing to eat, in came an epidemic of measles that swept through our village. And um, measles should keep you out of school for a few days, right? Uh, but because we were debilitated from hunger, it, uh, it was a killer. 
And as, when I was a little guy, about seven or eight years old, um, one out of every four of my childhood buddies in that village died of measles. Some of them in my arms as I pleaded as a little boy myself for God not to take my little friend. Don't you have enough of my friends in heaven? I remember running to my father after a few weeks of losing my friends day by day. He was translating the Bible and I remember he looked up and he said, what is it, son? I said, Papa, I wanna know, when do you think it'll be my turn? And he said, your turn for what, Wes? And I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying and I'm thinking I might be soon. And I'll never forget my father. He said, son, you don't have to worry about that. And I said, how do you know, Papa? And he said, roll up your T-shirt. And I rolled up my T-shirt. He said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here so you wouldn't get this kind of disease. And New Beginnings, I hit a moment in my life that changed me forever because I'll never forget my father's face getting blurry. And I stammered, Papa, that's not fair. Why do I have scratches on my arm and all of my friends don't have scratches on their arms? Why me, why me? Imagine my joy decades later to be Compassion's president and to be in a place where I could put little scratches on children's arms all across the world, hundreds of thousands of little children. But it all came from that moment. By the time I was 15 and left Africa, half of all my childhood friends had died. I didn't know why they died. I thought this was going on all across the world probably. Um, but then I learned it was something called poverty. I'd never heard the word. I come to America when I'm 15 years old. The first place I see in America, Manhattan, New York City. I go from a desert village in, in West Africa uh, to the biggest city in the world. I hadn't seen anything bigger than a mud hut and here were these skyscrapers. I'm told people are living way up there. And I'm like, really? I remember walking through the streets of, uh, of New York my first day. If you ever read my book, Too Small to Ignore, it starts with that first day in America and then backtracks to my village. People were walking around with big brown paper bags down the sidewalks and I was tall enough by then to be able to see inside. It was food. And being a pretty darn good little hunter here, I, uh, I decided I'm gonna track that down. I'm gonna see where that's coming from. And I backtracked it and I came at age 15 to my first grocery store. I walked inside and here was all of this food. And it hit me, there's plenty of food. Next door was a pharmacy and I walked in there and in my broken English, I said, what all this? And they said, well, it's, it's medicine. And with a clench in my heart, I said, you have vaccination here? And he says, oh yeah, we don't sell it to little guys like you, we sell it to doctors and nurses clinics, but yeah, plenty. And it hit me, there's plenty of food and there's plenty of medicine. It just wasn't where I was growing up. And I went out and I sat down in front of that store and I sobbed and I sobbed this skinny little 47, uh, little, uh, little skinny kid. And I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. All of this loss and I didn't know why it had to happen. It was New York City, if you've ever been there. Uh, nobody so much as stopped and said, hey, little guy, are you okay? 
and I eventually ran out of tears. And I began watching these people just walk back and forth on the sidewalk, fancy shoes and purses and watches, and I thought, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this, and you don't care. And I fell into a rage that lasted all through my high school years till I had lived in America long enough to really get to know Americans. And what I discovered was the issue was, it isn't that they don't care, they don't know. And when they know, they really, really care. Probably the most generous people in all of the world. And I thought, well, here's my tough spot. I know these children and I know poverty and I know their setting, but I also know these people who have big hearts, they just don't know about it. And somehow there needs to be a bridge that pulls these two groups together. They need what each other has. These people have money in their pocket, but they need love and hope and joy. And these people need some of this money in order to not starve to death. And I thought, oh no, I'm one of the few people I know who know both ends of this bridge. So what am I supposed to do with that? Am I gonna to have to work for the United Nations or am I gonna to have to be a diplomat of some kind? I didn't wanna to have to do that. I stumbled into a little storefront about the size of a 7-Eleven and it said Compassion International over the top. And I did the same thing there that I did at the pharmacy. I said, what all this? <laughs> and they said, well, our, uh, our enemy is poverty. And I said, yeah. I know a thing or two about that. I remember thinking if poverty and I were two little guys on a playground duking it out and the teacher jumped in between and said, hey, 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 who started this? I could honestly say, he did. He broke my heart when I was a little guy and all I'm doing is fighting back with the rest of my life. So when I understood what they were doing 45 years ago, I threw my hat in the ring. I said, I don't have to start an organization. I'm gonna help this one. I'm gonna help this one be as good as it can be, and I'm gonna help this one uh, be as big as it can be. And I've watched it grow in 45 years from 25,000 sponsored children to 2.3 million sponsored children, ministered to by local churches in 8,000 settings across 26 countries. Like I said, the most strategic and loving thing you can do is bring a child to a relationship with their Heavenly Father. I'm here to tell you, I can't tell, we can't put it on our website because the world is getting so crazy. But I know this for a fact because we measure this. Today, across the Ministry of Compassion, of those two million children, I know that 500 of them will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. At the knee of their pastor, or in a Sunday school class under a tree somewhere. If you want to picture that, look around you in this sanctuary. In the course of this week, between now and the next time you sit in that same seat perhaps, the Ministry of Compassion will have filled every seat in this sanctuary three times over with children who have accepted Jesus Christ. And now the task is to disciple them. And that's where you come in, and that's why we need... Uh, people who can help us uh, disciple children. Let me close with one quick story of what this looks like, those of you who are not sponsors. How does a child go from a complete hopeless setting to reaching their God-given potential? So this one was a little Kenya guy. Uh, when, he was, uh, when he was small, he was given a school teacher in England as his sponsor. 
And in his first letters, we see exactly what you would expect from a little child with very little hope. He wrote and he said, you can see from the picture that they sent of me uh, that I'm not very handsome. And she wrote back and said, no, I got your picture on my desk. I look at you every day. I think you're a handsome little guy. Okay, a little while later, he writes back and he says, well, now you can see from the report card they sent you that I'm not all that smart. That was hard on a teacher, but she said, you know what, you're as smart as you need to be to be anything God wants you to be. Just always do your best. He begins to believe that there's somebody believing in him all the way across the world. So he starts looking for something he might be good at. And so at age eight, he writes to her and he says, well, guess what I just learned? I run faster than anybody in my classroom. We had a race today and I won. And she wrote back, oh, I'm proud of you. It's good to be good at something. So he believes her and he starts running. He runs to school, he runs to church. He writes back a few years later, says, guess what now? I run faster than anybody in my whole school. And she writes, I'm so proud of you. A few years later, he writes back yet again. He says, well, guess what now? I run faster than almost anybody in Kenya. I'm on the Olympic team. I'm a marathon runner. The Olympics were held in Korea that year. He ran, he won a medal. We thought, let's route him home to Kenya by way of England. Let him meet this little lady who has been encouraging him all this time. So this big, tall Kenya marathoner, he comes to her little cottage. She's now retired. He can't hardly get in. He's so big and tall. He has to stoop to get in her door. But when he stands up, there sits his sponsor in a little uh, rocking chair. She can no longer walk. And he holds up his Olympic medal and he says, this, this is for you. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. I watched you this time. I saw you on television. You're so fast. I'm so, I'm so proud of you. I'm just so proud of you. And he said, no, 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 stop. He said, if you hadn't believed in me when I was eight years old, I never would have run. This is your victory. And oh, I wish I could tell you that of the children on the tables out there that we're looking for sponsors for, that... Uh, there's one of them with a DNA knit into them to be an Olympian. We would have some sort of holy stampede, you know, give me the high jumper, give me the pole vaulter. There's not. But I can promise you this, every child is knit in their mama's womb as lovingly as I was knit in my mama's womb. They were given dignity. They were given talent. They were given intellect. They were given everything that they need to reach their full God-given potential that poverty has tried to snatch away from them. And what we're looking for is people who can say what that school teacher said is that is, don't give up. I believe in you. I'm praying for you. I'm watching for you. So now you know my cause. You know what I have lived my life for, how I have fought so very hard. And it's my prayer that you will join us in this venture. Remember to support what you're doing in Jerusalem. You got a great thing going here. Make sure that money is coming into yours. But God will provide for a little child in Ethiopia for you. And if you don't have a cause, please do find a cause. Something bigger than you, outside of you. Something not about you. Something that can move you to tears in 30 seconds. Tears of joy or tears of sorrow. If you don't have a cause like that, I beg you don't live like that. We don't have time before our Lord returns for you to live 
like that. Find your cause, give it everything that you have. And my prayer for you is the same as the prayer I have for myself. And that in the midst of that cause that you throw yourself into, in the midst of that prayer, in the midst of that meal, in the midst of that hug, in the midst of that letter to someone all the way across the world, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, scripture says, when you least expect it, a trumpet blast, and we will go home. Finally, finally home. Home where there's no more death, no more sickness, no more sorrow, not even any more tears. Revelation 21.4, the Lord says, I, I will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Can you imagine new beginnings? The hands that knit you in your mama's womb are waiting to wipe the tears from your eyes, having seen and felt everything you're going through. The hands that picked you up when you fell down with a broken heart and you didn't think you could get up again. The hands that reached down and picked you up are waiting to comfort you. The hands that spread out on the cross to take the nails to redeem you are waiting to comfort you and wipe the tears from your eyes. And I don't know about what that does to your heart, but I'll tell you what it does to me. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to run into the arms of Jesus. I cannot wait to run to the arms of my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, my King. And I don't mean stroll, I'm running into his arms. And I can't wait as I arrive in his arms for him to wipe the tears from my eyes. Way too many tears for one lifetime. But as he wipes the tears from my eyes, my prayer for me and my prayer for you is that he will notice he also needs to wipe the sweat from our brows because we live the lives that he called us to live. We fought for, the, for those who are treated with injustice. We reached out to the least of these and we did it in Jesus' name. Oh, new beginnings, may it be so. May it be so for me and may it be so for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.